Hey guys, my name's Drew. It's good to be be with you here tonight. Um, we are continuing this series called The Story of Everything. And tonight we are in a part of the story that a lot of people consider unexciting. It's um, part of the story that you skip in your Bible reading plan, maybe. So we're looking at Joel, who's uh, one of the minor prophets. Minor doesn't mean unimportant, it just means short. And so we're going to kind of take a jet tour through this minor prophet. And I think that the reason that I want you to listen tonight, the reason I think that this text is important, is illustrated by the reality that one time I was in a crowd of college students, about 2,500 students, at a large conference when I was in college. And the speaker who was speaking asked the question, if people there, when they first began to explore the things of Christianity, were more loved into it, or if they were more scared into it. And I remember first he said, okay, if you were loved into Christianity, raise your hand. And, you know, a bunch of people were raised their hands. And then he said, if you were scared into it, raise your hand. And a lot more people raised their hand. And I remember being kind of floored by that and kind of making a commitment in my own heart and in my own ministry that I wouldn't shy away from talking about the hard things in Christianity because it seemed to me, and it's continued to be so in my life and ministry, that it's often the hard things that most transform us in our character. It's often the things that we don't like to hear that when we begin to hear them, our lives are transformed. Okay, so, so this is the, the sentence that we're looking at in the story. And then after I read the sentence, we're going to look at um, three ways that God deals with rebellious people. Okay, so this is the sentence. It'll be up on the screen. It says, now God's people betrayed him again and never came home. But God promised that his coming king would live with them forever and give them new hearts. So we're at this place in the story where the people of God have been rebelling against him, are in exile or about to be exiled. We don't exactly know when uh, the prophet Joel spoke and They've had invading armies coming in, and we're going to get into kind of a disastrous situation with the prophet Joel here. So three ways that God deals with rebels is what we're going to see. The first one we're going to look at, it's maybe the most offensive one, it's that God punishes rebels. Hey, Joel chapter 1, starting with verse 4. It says, What the locust swarm has left the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away. 
leaving their branches white, mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. I think what's immediately obvious about this text is that we're walking into a funeral, not into a party. The, the tone of the text is sad. And so we begin to ask the question, why are they sad? And we see right away in the text, it's because Israel has become locust infested. There are locusts, locusts everywhere. There are great locusts, young locusts, other locusts, lots of locusts. And so we ask the question, what is a locust? I would encourage you to go just watch this short video that uh, BBC did of locusts swarming this spot in the desert. So you think millions of these tiny creatures that look like grasshoppers are everywhere. And what I learned about a locust in my study is that an adult locust can eat eat its entire body weight every day. Okay, So these locusts have swarmed into the nation of Israel and they are eating everything. They're destroying all of the agriculture, which would be a big deal in our society, but in our society, the locusts wouldn't be able to get into the grocery stores, so we would be okay. But in that society, in agrarian society, the crop was everything. It was life itself. For, so for locusts to swarm into your city was one of the worst things that could possibly happen. And so the text says that vines are being destroyed, that fig trees are being destroyed, and that grain is being destroyed. And there's two specific people that are singled out that are weeping and wailing. The first is the drunkards. It says, wake up, you drunkards, and weep, wail, all you drinker, drinkers of wine. Why? Because the vine is being destroyed, which means the wine is going to run out. So he's kind of saying, enjoy your last glass of wine because you're not going to have any wine anymore, which was a sign of wealth and prosperity and overflowing and joy. So he's saying, drunkards, weep, wail. The wine's going to be gone. And secondly, he talks about the priests. The priests would offer grain offerings and drink offerings, sacrifices to God made of grain and wine. And he's saying, okay, listen, there's going to be no more grain offerings. There's going to be more, no more drink offerings because the grain crop has just been wiped out and is in the process of being wiped out by these locusts, and the vines, as we've already said, is being wiped out. Here's what he's saying. 
If the same event is making the drunkards weep and making the priests weep, everybody is affected. That covers everybody, right? The priests and the drunkards are both mad about the same thing. The crap has hit the fan. Things are not going well. Here's what we learn. Here's sort of a guiding principle of this text. We all mourn when what is most precious to us is taken away from us. Begin thinking about what that is for you. In an agrarian society, it's the crop. Because if you don't have the crop, you lose your life. There's many different things that that could be for you. could be a relationship that you have. It could be an addiction that you have. It could be food. It could be money. It could be any number of things that you think, if I lost this, my life would be over. I got kind of a vivid example of this in a funny place this week. So, at first, my kids and I were playing the game Trouble. But recently, we made the switch to the game called Old Maid. And I don't know if you guys have played Old Maid, but the goal of Old Maid is to not have this old lady card in your hand at the end of the game. But the problem with that is that every time we were playing the game, there were three winners and one loser. And all of my kids are like me. They're poor losers. And so only one lost, and so it was devastating. So we decided to change the rules. And the rule was the goal is to keep the old maid. And so whoever has the old maid at the end loses. And my goal was to, or whoever has the old maid wins, sorry. Um, So my goal was to make it easy for everybody to enjoy the game, right? Because maybe I'd lose and one of my kids would lose and I'd help kind of pull them out of the hole that they're in. And so we were playing the game the other night and essentially my daughter, Aria, ends up getting the old maid taken from her on her last turn. And she lost her mind. Just absolutely lost her mind. Because in that moment, the old lady was the most precious thing to her on earth. And so first she's screaming, then we're all laughing, then she's screaming more, then she's running down to her room and just absolutely losing her mind. And at the same time, my daughter Hazel, who had taken the old maid from her, is just laughing and delighted and enjoying that moment so much. But isn't it true? It doesn't matter if it's an old maid card or something that's precious to us in our lives. If something that is precious to us is taken from us, especially what's most precious to us, we're devastated. So here's what happens in this text. This is interesting. We start to wonder, why the locusts? Was this from Satan? Was this just happenstance that these locusts came into Israel? Why are the locusts there? And later on, 
in the text, we find out why the locusts were there. Joel 2.11 says this, The Lord thunders at the head of His army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys His command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? The context of this passage is God taking credit for this plague happening in Israel. He says, the locusts have been like an army and the locusts have a commander and it is me. Why? Because God is punishing His people for their sin. And His punishment to them is to take away what they believe is most precious to them. Why would God do that? A lot of people, this is where they bow out of Christianity. This is where they say, you know what, this is why I can't believe in God. And they kind of divide up God between Old Testament and New Testament. They say, I can't believe in this Old Testament God because he's so filled with wrath. Why would he do something like this? Why would he punish his people? What is he up to? What is he doing? What is his purpose? Here's what God's doing. He is taking away from Israel what they believe is most precious to them that is actually not what is most precious. Because when you hit rock bottom, you see that is what is most precious to you, if you are a child of God, can never be taken away from you. You see, it wasn't the grain and the wine that was actually their most treasured possession it was God himself. And it was only when God took away what was precious to them as a punishment that they were sober enough to see that he is the greatest treasure in the universe. You see, God is into tough love. He will take away what is most precious to you to give you what is actually most precious, namely himself. He wants to give us more. So secondly, here's the second thing, second way that God responds to rebels. He punishes rebels. God pleads with rebels. And once he gets our attention... He, he pleads with us. Here's what the text says. Starting with verse 12 of chapter 2. Even now, declares the, the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing 
grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children. Those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Text starts off in a beautiful way with the words, even now. Even now. Two amazing words in the Bible. Even though God's people have been rebelling against Him for hundreds of years, and He has just punished them, He says, even now, you have the chance to return to me, to repent of your sin, to turn away from what you've done, and to turn toward better paths. So he begins to plead with them. What's the basis for him pleading with them? He's not pleading with them because they're good people, because they're reasonable people because they'll come around somehow based on their own character. He's not building up their self-esteem. He's saying, here's why you can return to me. Because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's one of the most repeated phrases in the Old Testament. That God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I'd encourage you sometime, when you're reading through the Psalms, just underline every time you see that sentence, and you'll see that from an Old Testament perspective, that saying was like John 3.16 is to us. God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have eternal life. And we've memorized that passage, and they had memorized this passage, but very few of them believed it. They, like us, tended to get in this downward spiral of shame. And now they've been punished and their sin has been exposed. And God is coming tenderly to them and He's saying, remember. Remember what you already know. And that's something that we seek to do in every single environment that we teach in at Salt City Church and at Salt Company is just to remind you of the simple truth that you probably forget, just like I do, every single week That God loves you. The consequences of the sins in your life and the punishment that He doles out on you sometimes are not from the hand of a judge, but if you are in Christ, they're from the hand of a Father who loves you and wants to be in relationship with you. And every week that you come here and we open up God's Word, it's not to put the hammer down on you, but it's to give you another opportunity to just simply admit who you are, who God is, and that you need His love, grace, and compassion to saturate every part of your life. Guys, I get very constant reminders of God's love for me as I parent my kids. It was a few months ago that one of my kids was having just a particularly bad week. Just rebellious, making bad choices at home, making bad choices at school, and we just hadn't had the chance to sit down and sort of have a heart-to-heart. And so one of the best times when you're a parent to have heart-to-hearts with your kids is at bedtime. 
And so they were laying in bed. I was laying next to them. And I just said, you know, buddy, no matter what you do, I love you. Do you know that you could tell me anything that you did? And my response would be, I love you. It doesn't matter what you tell you. Let's, let's play a little game here right now. And I said, just start telling me stuff you did that you feel bad about. Like anything that you can think of. Maybe it happened like two years ago. Maybe it happened yesterday. Whatever it is, just tell me. And no matter what it is, I'm going to say, I love you. I said, I might say, you did that? No way. I still love you, though, okay? And so it started off slow. And they just kept sharing more and more things. Like I learned that, that they had stolen some stuff out of their teacher's desk a year before. And I mean, all these things. Apparently, there were um, like pieces of construction paper in the vents of our house. I still haven't cleaned those out, by the way. Um, and they just kept going on and on with all of these things. And I just kept responding. Yep. Still love you. Yep. Still love you. Yep. Still love you. And the more that I said I love you, the more that they were just like telling me like, oh, this is working. Like, I thought that this worked the other way. I thought I was supposed to hide my sin so that my dad would love me. But this is working the opposite way that if I tell him, he tells me, he loves me. Guys, that's exactly how the gospel works. Look at this. This is in the Old Testament. This is the angry guy, supposedly. This is pre-Jesus. And he's still saying, guys, I'm gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He's pleading with you. He's not mad. He's mad that your sin is destroying you and that you're trusting it to satisfy you more than you're trusting him. He's mad that you're believing that life is found in the things of this life and not in him, and he wants your ultimate joy. And he's saying, the way into my presence is not pretending. The way into my presence is just saying it like it is. Have you ever just said it like it is to God? Just told him. He's like, yep, I masturbated yesterday. Yep, I looked at pornography. Yep, I just checked that guy or girl out. Yep, I love money. Yep, just lusted again. Yep, I'm exactly who you say I am. You ever just been honest with God? You know what? It's awesome. It's so great. It's kind of embarrassing. You know, sometimes you just got to write it down. But here's what you'll start to experience. Grace. Are you one of those people that just says you believe in grace like these people did? They knew John 3.16, but they hadn't internalized it in such a way that they just told God the truth. You can tell him the truth. He's pleading with you. But he doesn't stop at pleading. He starts giving these absolutely crazy promises. Punishes, he pleads, he promises. God promises to rebels. Check this out. Joel 2, 25-29. He says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God. 
who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be ashamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. See what he's saying? Not only am I pleading with you, and will I respond from my character of love and compassion, but I want to give you everything back that I took away from you. And God even takes the time to name each locust again, right? He wants to make sure that they know there were millions of locusts and he had described them earlier. And so he takes great care to say, the great locust, the young locust, the other locust, I'll repay you for everything that all of the different locusts did. I'm giving you your wine back. I'm giving you your grain back. And check this out. God is holding out these promises to his people before they actually repent. Which means, did you know, that one of the greatest motivations for repentance is the reward you get. God baits you with pleasure. He's like, I want to give you everything that you've ever wanted. And sometimes that will actually, we learn in this passage, take the form of material prosperity. I think God is literally saying, the locusts are going to be gone and your crops will start growing again. There's going to be tangible benefits of turning away from sin and turning to repentance. God promises that your life will be better in many ways, even in this life. That's not always the case. Sometimes we suffer. Sometimes things are hard. But sometimes God just wants to bless you. You're his child and he loves you and he promises that that will happen and that is actually what happens temporarily to the people of God. Seems like they're kind of in that pattern. They repent and then they forget again and they repent and they forget again and, and all that. But then there's sort of this near promise in the passage, which often happens in prophetic books. There's a prophecy that's going to take place within the lifetime of the people. But then there's also a far promise that they're not going to actually see fulfilled in their lifetime, but the near promise is sort of a guarantee of the far promise. And so there's these huge promises that aren't fulfilled for a long, long time. There's a couple of them. One is that their shame would be taken away. It says, I'm going to take away your shame. I'm going to wipe away your shame. Here's what was true in the Old Testament. The shedding of animals' blood never took away people's sin. They were under the sacrificial system, and what would happen is they would sacrifice animals, and then they would have to go year after year and sacrifice animals again on the Day of Atonement. And what happened was it never took away people's shame. If pride is when you do well and take credit for it. Shame is when you do poorly and you're destroyed by it. 
And there was no way that the blood of animals could take away shame. It would take the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross to take away shame, which they were looking forward to and didn't have a clear picture of. And by God's grace, we look in the rearview mirror at. And the second thing that he promises is shame will be taken away and the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all the people of God, which we know is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was now the sign and seal that someone had been saved by grace. God's Spirit comes to dwell in every single believer, not just special prophets or kings or priests, but in every believer. So here's kind of the difference between being an Old Testament believer and a New Testament believer. It's the difference between when my family was looking forward to going to Disney World and actually experiencing Disney World. The anticipation was fun, right? We showed our kids pictures of the castle, the restaurants we were going to eat at, the Disney characters. We made a chain and took off one chain you know, every day. And everybody got really excited. But that was nothing compared to standing in front of the castle and seeing the fireworks go off and losing our minds after the best day of my kids' entire lives. You see, in the Old Testament, they looked forward to the days that we are living in. Are you experiencing the joy of living in the best time in human history where your shame is gone because of what Jesus has already done. He said, it is finished. And you're experiencing the power of the new life offered to you in Christ where he has filled you with his spirit so that you can actually not be a rebel anymore, but you can say no to sin and live this new resurrected life. What do we have to do to get there? How do we get there? Here's what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. I love this in uh, the New Living Translation, so I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Guys, That's the time that we live in. Where Jesus is saying, hey, look, the work's done. I'm knocking. I want relationship with you. He says, listen, all those things that you're looking for satisfaction in in your life will never satisfy you. The only thing that will satisfy you is being in relationship with Jesus. He just wants to know you. That's how simple this whole Christianity thing is. I know it gets muddled and all that. It's just about knowing Jesus and enjoying relationship with him. And so the exile, these locusts and all this stuff that happens, it reminds us that God is for us, that he wants to know us. Let's pray. Jesus... uh, 
I'm blown away by this message every time. It's just, it's so awesome that even though on a daily basis, we're running away from you and we're forgetting the beauty of your grace and we're looking to a thousand other things to satisfy us, that you just still continue to knock. You knock through your word, you knock through other people, uh, you knock through your spirit inside of us. And, and I just pray for the person who's just crazy enough to think that it's not a good idea to open the door. Just, Jesus, if you have to, would you just get out some sledgehammers and knock the door open and just come into to people's lives so that they can experience the joy of knowing you, even tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.